on, two. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. On 4 December 1964, the Beatles released their fourth, that's a lot of fours, their fourth LP on the Parlophone label. It was entitled Beatles for Sale. And as all of you who grew up in America know, it wasn't released in the United States. Instead, we got two LPs from the songs on this record. Beatles 65 was what we got. It was released about 11 days later. But of course, not all of the songs on Beatles for Sale were included. Very sadly, the sounds that American fans grew up to and the order of songs that you and I remember so instinctively when we sing the songs from the LP in our heads or when we sing them along with the record, that order of songs is not what the Beatles wanted for their music. Instead, it's a hodgepodge thrown together by Capitol Records who absolutely slaughtered the Beatles' creations for their own commercial gains. But it is Beatles for Sale that John, Paul, George, and Ringo wanted you to listen to and wanted you to remember as their fourth creative offering on vinyl, and it's that LP that we celebrate tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Beatles for Sale hit the number one spot in the UK and retained that position for 11 of the 46 weeks that it spent in the top 20. And for the Beatles, the LP is full of first. Number one, it was the first Beatles LP to show the influence of country music. It's loaded with country music. Two Carl Perkins numbers are included, Honey Don't and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, and of course the Beatles wrote their own country number, I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. When quizzed about the LP, John said, you could call our new one a country and western LP. Yeah, well said, sir. Fact number two in the first that Beatles for Sale created, it was the first gatefold cover. And inside that gatefold cover, there's a collage of Beatles photos against, get this, a backdrop of famous personalities. Lawrence of Arabia, Ricky Ricardo. What is this? It's definitely prefiguring Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The influence of Stu Sutcliffe encouraging John to make artistic records lives on. Third first for Beatles for Sale, it was the first LP to show a crack in the veneer of the Beatles. In fact, if you look at the cover photo, you see them looking very tired. And several of the songs on this LP 
such as I'm a loser, what you're doing, and I don't want to spoil the party, depict the Beatles in depressed and troubled relationships. That's a first for the Beatles. And look, why not? The boys were tired. They started recording Beatles for Sale only seven days after the last session for A Hard Day's Night. And this was smack in the middle of what I call the 180 most difficult days of their entire career. You may have heard me talk about this before at the Fest for Beatles fans, but in between 22nd February 1964 and 19 August 1964, the Beatles did these things. Completed a full-length feature film, did numerous television interviews and radio shows, performed on live broadcast, did tons of live performances, including the Night of a Hundred Stars at the London Palladium in which they did this strange aerial ballet. Also, during this time, they performed live concerts. Brian booked them for a Sunday seaside session during the summer in which every Sunday they were performing at the British seaside. They went on a world tour, and in John's case, he released a book, and he moved into a new t- into a new home, two tasks that actually would bring most people to their knees. So, were the Beatles tired when they recorded Beatles for Sale? You betcha, they were. But, do they sound it? Well, let's listen to the first track and decide together. This is the LP opener, No Reply. This happened once before, back into your door, no reply. They said it wasn't you, but I saw you peek through your window. I saw the light, I saw the light. I know that you saw me. That was No Reply, which opens both Beatles for Sale and its American counterpart of sorts, Beatles 65. Now, no matter which LP you grew up listening to, at this juncture, the band is still very much John Lennon's band. And so his voice is the opening sound that you hear as those first grooves roll out the songs for us. Now, it's interesting to me that John begins with the words, this happened once before. Because, you know, for girls like me, this was the fourth time that we had sat at the record player holding our breath as a new Beatles LP was unveiled for us. It had happened once before. And now, thankfully, the magic was happening once again. You know, when John kicked off the LP with the Beatles, it was only his voice singing, it won't be long, yeah, yeah, and he captivated us with that sound of only his voice and drew us into the story of love. He combined the chanka-chanka rhythm of his guitar with his storyteller's charm to draw the listener in. And that's what he does again as he draws the listeners into the story of No Reply. To John's face, Dick James said that No Reply was, quote-unquote, the first song in which John told a complete story from beginning to end. Well, besides being rude to say that to someone, it's bull. Yes, 
this story does tell us about a lovelorn guy who's walking in front of his girl's home. He's phoned her, and he's been told she's not there, but he can see her in the light of the window. And he's singing his guts out, saying that if he were her, he'd realize that he's the only one who can really love her wholly and completely. He pours his heart out. It's a beautiful song, but it's not really a complete story. I mean... We don't know if she changes her mind and takes him back or if they ever get together again. It's actually no more of a complete story than the one after 909, which John and Paul wrote together years earlier, or A Hard Day's Night, in which he talks about what's going to happen when he gets home after a hard day at work, or Not a Second Time, when he's thinking about whether he should take this girl who hurt him back again or not, and his reluctance to take her back. And that is the charm of the story, that it's not complete, and you are left to figure out the ending. The real question, Dick James, is not whether this is a complete story, but whether this is a fictional story. Or is it perhaps how John felt when standing outside one Blomfield Road, Julia's house, and yearning for her? wishing he were the most important man in her life instead of Bobby Dykins. You can almost hear that precocious 9-year-old or 11-year-old or 16-year-old thinking, if I were you, I'd realize that I love you more than any other guy, with disdain and with a broken heart. And I'd forgive the lies that I heard before when you dropped me at Aunt Mimi's and never came back again. I'd forgive the past if only you'd love me and let me live with you as Julia and Jackie do. If only you'd take me home. There's a powerful middle eight in this song, guys. And it was heralded by Ian McDonald, who wrote Revolution in the Head, as I'm sure you know, as, quote, the most powerful phrase featured in any Beatles song to date. Listen to that middle eight. When you listen to the song next time, it'll rip your heart out, especially when you know what John Lennon is always, always singing about. The girl who leaves him behind in every song is always Julia, his mother. He is always wailing for her at the microphones of the world. Always. Those of you who know your music, of course, know that No Reply was inspired by Silhouettes, by The Rays, later a hit by Herman's Hermits. But Silhouettes is a happy song because in the end, the boy finds out that he's on the wrong block and his real girlfriend is waiting for him in her correct location. No reply doesn't have a happy ending. And in real life for John Lennon, there was no happy ending either. John's love would always be unrequited. Next up is I'm a Loser. Now, this song really mystified me when it came out before I really knew John Lennon's story. I mean, look, John was popular, talented, rich, successful, good-looking, beloved by millions. What was he talking about, I'm a Loser? It was a pretty disturbing song when you were in junior high school. It may have been the song that led me to investigate his life story, and it, it definitely had something to do with me ending up writing this nine-volume John Lennon series on his life. In the song, John lays bare his emotions, and he tells you exactly who he is. He's a loser. He's not what he appears to be. He acts like a clown, but beneath the perpetual linen Cheshire grin and smart remark, he's wearing a frown. His tears are falling like rain from the sky, always. This is John's story. Let's listen. 
Although I laugh and I act like a clown Beneath this mask I am wearing a frown My tears are falling like rain from the sky Is it for her or myself that I cry? I'm a loser and I lost someone who's near to me I'm a loser and I'm not what I appear to be Well, that was I'm a Loser. And for all of John's life, he bemoaned exactly what he's bemoaning in that song, The Loss of Julia. You know, her inability to keep her son by her side for very important and complicated reasons in her life was his emotional undoing. But for us, and really for John in a sense, it was his doing as a songwriter, because the story that he tells to so many different tunes and to so many different tempos for the rest of his life is this same story. Julia, of course, is the girl in the million, my friends, madly in love with her, had no connection with her in his childhood years, reconnects with her as a teenager. She's smart, musically talented, artistic, bohemian, out of the box, witty, sound familiar, and John was absolutely mad about her. So many other songs, like I'm a Loser, belong to Julia. The song's prime question is this. Is it for her or myself that I cry? And I think it was really for both. Well, you can hear that I'm a Loser has that country and western element that we were talking about at the top of the program. You've got sad lyrics, finger-picking, guitar twang, and, of course, you have something we haven't heard in a while, that signature Beatles harmonica, John playing his harmonica. The Beatles were really into Buck Owens and Carl Perkins and George Jones about this time, and you can really hear it in this song. Now, you guys know the overblown myth, M-Y-T-H, myth, that about this time John met Bob Dylan, which he did, and because of Bob Dylan, he started writing biographical lyrics like I'm a Loser, but core, as they say in Liverpool, that's crazy, crazy talk, because from the beginning of his career, John was always honest about who he was, the boy with the broken heart. Look at the cover songs he chose to sing. I'm nobody's child. Baby, it's you. You really got a hold on me. In fact, he sang that one time as you really got a hold on me, mother. Then look at his originals. Not a second time. If I fell, every one of them tells the story of his separation from Julia, and they all predate his meeting with Bob Dylan. So, Bob may have encouraged and bolstered what John already wanted to say and do, but it was in no way Bob's original idea. This confessional, autobiographical outpouring was always John's concept, his claim to fame. And that brings us to another confessional song, but this time one that's not about Julia. It's confessional about a girl that he loved in secret. It is Babies in Black. The story of why John wrote Babies in Black can be found in the second volume of the John Lennon series, Shivering Inside, which is available on Kindle. You know the story. John's best friend, Stu Sutcliffe, passed away unexpectedly only one day before John was to be reunited with him. And in those dark, awful, horrible days that followed, 
John was sustained by the friendship of Stu's fiance, Astrid Kirscher. She also was torn up, bereft, heartbroken, and she turned to John, and the two of them held each other up. The conflict begins when John slowly begins to discover that he's attracted to this artistic, unique, bohemian, out-of-the-box woman. The only problem in that, of course, is that he belongs to Cynthia Powell back home, and Astrid only thinks of Stu. She can't see that John has feelings for her, and if she does, she ignores them, and so the attraction goes nowhere. Now, time-wise, this song was written in the late spring and the early summer of 1962, just after Stu's death, but it only surfaces on LP in 64. It is absolutely untrue, no matter what you read, that this song was written by both Beatles. It was a John song, lyric-wise. But much later, several years later, John and Paul work on the dual melody line together at John's home, Kenwood. The lyrics, however, are all John's. The song was written in 6-8 times, so it sounds sort of like a waltz. But as soon as you hear it, you're going to realize that these are the new Beatles, Beatles 2.0, as Robert Rodriguez would say. They've started experimenting. No reply was bossa nova. I'm a loser, country and western. Now you've got this song, which is a waltz, but it also has very country and western guitar twang in it. George is really playing that, that guitar twang. So the Beatles have started becoming the experimental Beatles who are going to take us up to Sgt. Pepper and Revolver and all the way to the end. You've got John and Paul singing on the same microphone. They're there for a closer harmony and a closer unity. And there's even a hint of bagpipes, Highland bagpipes in the song. You'll have to listen for it. Here is Babies in Black. Well, the next song up is one of my favorites, probably one of yours too. It's rock and roll music written by none other than the great Chuck Berry. You know, in one interview that the Beatles did when they were promoting with the Beatles, Paul lamented that they weren't doing as many cover songs. He said they loved them, the old songs, the ones that they performed in the Cavern Club. And, of course, when they did A Hard Day's Night, they weren't allowed to do any covers because that's an original soundtrack for the movie. So there were no cover songs at all. But now, press for time to get Beatles for Sale out as a Christmas release they gladly return to this concept of intermingling cover songs with original songs, and this is one of their very favorites. They loved, loved, loved Chuck Berry. In the Cavern Club, they performed Too Much Monkey Business, Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, and Maybelline, and of course, Rock and Roll Music, one of Chuck Berry's best. John is singing lead on this side of the LP almost continually, and he sings rock and roll music. This is John Lennon at his best, guttural, 
Sexy Untamed. Listen to Chuck Berry sing it. What you're going to hear is a great song, but a very monotone, even rendition of the song. John takes it and makes it into a Hamburg Cavern Club rock and roll brash song. He unleashes rock and roll music on the listener, and he will for you right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Kick against Martin Jazz Unless it's out of play it too fast I lose the beauty of the melody Until it sounded like a symphony All right, Paul fans. Finally, we have a Paul number on the LP, and it's a lovely one. I'll follow the sun. You know, Paul once commented, every now and then we remember one of the good songs we wrote in the early days, and one of them is I'll Follow the Sun. And Sir Maka was right. This is a beautiful, beautiful offering. If you listen to the lyrics, it is very easy to distinguish between John's version of Love Lost and Paul's version of Love Lost. Paul feels perfectly sure that what's going to happen when the girl walks away from him is she's going to live to regret it. And one day she's going to know he was the one and she's going to be very sorry. And instead of walking into a dark and uncertain future, lonely and destroyed, Paul follows the sun. Yeah, they had two versions of Love Lost because they had two completely different frames of reference. Both, Both John and Paul lost their mothers. But Paul did it against the backdrop of a very stable family life. Father, mother, who was there his whole time that he was growing up, and brother. And when his mother passes away from cancer, when he's extremely young, he even then remains in his home with his dad, with Jim Mack, with his brother Mike, and with Auntie Jen stepping in to help his dad care for the two young sons. There is absolutely no abandonment of the boys. His home life is very stable. So for Paul, even love lost can have a ray of hope intermingle with it. And when that happens to him, he finds a way to move on and follow the sun. Guys, in choosing this theme, the Beatles really are, maybe unconsciously, keeping with the line of country and western, this genre that they're experimenting with. I mean, who doesn't know that the end of every single Louis L'Amour saga is the cowboy riding off into the sunset following the sun? That's what happens here. One day you'll look to see I've gone, but tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. It's a song that wrote that Paul wrote in 1959, definitely under the influence of Buddy Holly, and you can really hear the similarity to Buddy Holly's Raining in My Heart that he took to the top of the charts. But this song, this McCartney song, is less primitive than Buddy Holly's, and it's much more melodic. It's a very touching number. Let's listen to I'll Follow the Sun. I've gone for tomorrow may rain so I'll follow the sun Someday you'll know I was the one but tomorrow may 
All right, it's time for a little controversy because our next song on Beatles for Sale has been panned by the critics and praised by the critics. John Lennon loved it because he saw its effect on Cavern Club audiences, especially Cavern Club girls. They loved his wailing intro, as does Dr. Kid O'Toole, who selected it as one of the top 15 sounds of the Beatles that changed music forever. She loved, and most girls in the Cavern Club love John's sexy delivery. So let's listen to that delivery. Here's the beginning, the intro to Mr. Moonlight. Mr. Moonlight You came to me one summer night Well, there it is. Many sources have called this one of the worst Beatles songs ever. But of course, it's not a Beatles song. It's a cover song written by Roy Lee Johnson. Now, let me give you some background on this. This song was a huge cult favorite among British R&B enthusiasts. Huge. It was a gigantic favorite of bands in London, and the Beatles loved it, too. John is singing the lead in this song, and George and Paul are singing the harmony, but the mystery of the song is what Ringo's playing. Some critics say it's definitely the bongos. Others say he's drumming on his case, and still others tell us he was using the toms of his drum kit just the way he did when they performed the song live. What's the real answer? Well, like most Beatles mysteries, we don't know. We can only guess. There's one more quirk in this song, and that is, instead of a guitar solo, in this song, we have Paul on the Hammond organ doing an organ solo, and it's this organ solo that has caused all of the criticism to fall on Mr. Moonlight. People have bashed it, calling it gold LeMay ghastliness. They've called it tasteless, they've called it cheesy, but you know what? It's different. And what the Beatles are doing is offering another diverse style to the LP. This time it's a Latin number with all verses and no choruses. And some people really object to the campy nature of this Latin format. But you know what? It's new, it's fresh, it's different, it's unique. John's vocal delivery definitely changes the number from being campy, something like Three Cool Cats, to a very serious contender in Dr. Kid O'Toole's opinion and in mine. And the song definitely showcased his talent in the Cavern Club. It was always considered one of his best, a huge hit in Germany at the Star Club, and a huge hit, I hope, with you. Well, the last song on side one of Beatles for Sale is Kansas City, Hey, 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 the medley, of course. It's another 
one of the brilliant covers that the boys selected to be on this LP, but it was omitted, as you know, American listeners, to the American version of this LP, Beatles 65, because Capitol always wanted a shorter LP so that they could make more albums and make more money. This particular medley was developed by Little Richard, and the Beatles saw him do it numerous times. As you guys know, they performed with him live in Hamburg in April of 1962. They performed with him at the Tower Ballroom in New Brighton in October of 1962. For them at that time, that was a big wow. They were thrilled to death to be with Little Richard, and he performed this medley, and I'm sure that they took it all in. This song, this particular version, was recorded in one take. And Paul says that John came to him before he sang it and told him to belt it out because the recording levels in in EMI were, in John's opinion, set way too low. So Paul took heed, gave it all he had, and yes, kiddo tool, Paul's delivery was perfect. Now, we all know that this one extra song was the one song added to the Beatles' North American tour on that fateful night in which they performed in Kansas City, Missouri. And if you want to read more about how they were talked into adding this one song, you have to grab up Chuck Gunderson's book, Some Fun Tonight, and he'll give you the inside scoop. There was only one little problem for the Beatles with recording this number, and that is that they followed Little Richard's footsteps by singing Kansas City very slowly and deliberately the way that Little Richard did, but that kind of made them sing Hey, 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 Hey a bit too slowly, almost too much. Listen to it and you decide. Regardless, it's a rocker, it's a great song, very upbeat to inside one of Beatles for Sale, and that's exactly what they did. Okay, guys, time for side two of Beatles for Sale. Are you hanging with me? I hope so. Now, so far, American listeners have been on the same page as listeners in the UK and France and Australia and so forth because side one of Beatles 65 is identical to side one of Beatles for Sale with that one omission of Kansas City, hey, 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 which was not on the American LP. But Now, we're going to venture forth into side two, and the LP versions between the American version, Beatles 65, and the rest of the world reaches a spot where two roads diverged in the yellow wood, as Robert Frost once penned. America is going to take the road less traveled by, and the rest of the world is going to hear those very familiar songs that I'm going to be telling you about now in order of their appearance on side two. So, Side 2 kicks off with 8 days a week. Now, why wasn't 8 days a week included on the American version, Beatles 65? Well, it's pretty simple. It's not there because Capitol earmarked it to be released as a single with I Don't Want to Spoil the Party on the B-side. Really? 
a bad decision on Capitol's part because these two songs bolster the theme of the country and western that the boys had decided to push in this song. Eight Days a Week, I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, both country and western songs. And without these two, the theme sort of disappears. For the Beatles, who were creative geniuses, this was extremely upsetting. Imagine yourself writing a book or a short story or a poem, and you have your thematic material in mind, and then it comes back from the publisher and your themes have been removed. You'd be pretty browned off, as they say in Liddy Pool. So, where did this phrase, eight days a week, come from? Well, it's another one of those Beatles controversies that crop up all through the John Lennon series, the kind of things that I discuss at the end of every chapter. In a 1984 interview with Playboy, Paul credited the title of the song to Ringo, and then both Paul and Linda agree that Ringo was horsing about, acting like a chauffeur, and he commented that he'd been working eight days a week. But then, in a later interview, Paul changed the story, and he told the press that John's chauffeur, his actual chauffeur, had really said it. So, as with most Beatles history, we really don't know the answer of where eight days a week came from. George Martin plays a big role in the development of this song. He took the unfinished number into the studio, and he experimented with it, and he added some unique features, including a fade in to the song instead of the familiar fade out that all the other bands used. And he brought back something that we remember from the early Beatles days, that old familiar hand clappings back again, a feature that we thought had vanished. So two things are back on this LP to remind us of the good old early days, John's harmonica and now the hand clapping, a bit of feel good for the fans. The Beatles are all singing on this song, and to tell you the truth, They never thought much of this song, none of them. They never performed it live, not one time. And when David Sheff asked John about the number, John called it lousy. I hate to tell you, but I have to agree with him. Eight Days a Week was more or less a filler song. However, it went to number one as the sixth of the Beatles' number ones in 1964, the previous songs having been I Feel Fine, Ticket to Ride, Help, Yesterday, and We Can Work It Out. So that's not too shabby. John is going to sing the lead on this song, opening song of Side 2, and Paul's going to back him up. And even though John called it lousy, here it is, eight days a week. From an original song, we're going to go straight into a cover song for the lads. Now, you remember, we've already had one song that was Buddy Holly-esque, I'll Follow the Sun. Well, this next song is actually Buddy Holly, Words of Love, a great cover number. Why did the Beatles pick it? Well, because it had been a huge 
hit for them in the cavern. But when they did it live in the cavern, guys, George and John sang it together, not Paul and John. If you want to hear that version of the song, you certainly can. Just go to Live at the BBC, Volume 2, and voila, there it is. But here on Beatles for Sale, it's Paul and John stepping up to the mic, and they're going to sing Mr. Holly's classic. Why did they switch it? Well, we don't know for sure, but you have to wonder if they didn't feel bad that Paul didn't have enough playtime on this LP, and so they gave him a little bit more participation by letting him usurp George's role here. You also have to wonder what George thought about that, and if way back here in 1964, if the seeds of discontent weren't already being sown. Now, as for Ringo, what's he doing? Well, this time, there's no question about his drum technique. He is definitely playing on his packing case. He's hoping to achieve the exact same sound that Buddy Holly got in his classic hit, Every Day. And you know what? He does. Huge hit in the Cavern days. The Beatles are hoping to offer it as an easy-to-record, not-a-lot-of-fuss-fave-here, words of love. Song three brings Ringo front and center. It's his time to shine, and he's going to do so with Honey Don't. Well, once again, we're returning to that country and western theme because this is a Carl Perkins original number. About two years ago, I was so privileged to be able to meet Stan Perkins, Carl's son. We were both at Beatles at the Ridge, the big Beatles festival in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, that's going to be happening again this year on September 18th and 19th. And Carl talked to me about, Stan talked to me at the Ridge about George Harrison, who was a close, close friend of his. He said that George told him that the Beatles really were hoping to play homage to Carl by recording this number on their LP. They really respected him. They respected his body of work. And so they recorded this song in his honor. If you had been lucky enough to be in the Cavern Club and to hear this song performed there, Ringo would not have been singing it. George wouldn't have been singing it. Paul wouldn't have been singing it. It was sung by John. This was his song. But the Beatles, as you know, always gave Ringo one song on each LP, and this is Ringo's song on Beatles for Sale. Why? Well, it's easy to sing. It's right in Ringo's range, and he utterly rocks it. During the number, you're going to hear in a second, Ringo speaks directly to George and says, Rock on, George, one time for me. And then later in the song, he says, Rock on, George, for Ringo one time. And some sources say, and you guys correct me if we're wrong here, that this is the only time that a Beatle directly addresses another Beatle by name on a single. Not 100% sure about that. I'm sure you'll let me know. You can hear John singing Honey Don't on Live at the BBC, Volume 2. But for now, here's Ringo with Honey Don't. Honey Don't. 
This is one of those songs that was not included on Beatles 65 for Americans. Paul's back again, and this is only his second solo on the LP. This is a number that he wrote for Jane Asher, his girlfriend. He was living upstairs with her brother Peter in Asher's home on Wimpole Street in London and madly in love with Jane Asher, and so presumably this song's about her. It's extremely unique, very unique in Beatles history because Paul wrote it, but John sang it. And you guys know that is highly unusual. The Beatles had an unspoken agreement that if you wrote the song, you sang it. But that's not how it went here. Now, for those people out there who think that Paul only wrote silly love songs, Ian McDonald says this song is proof that Sir Macca could write a love song with real depth. And the chorus of this particular song is often mentioned as proof of the fact that Paul could really write a beautiful and mature love song. Before you listen to the song, let me tell you a couple of things to listen for. First, the theme of the song is a little bit outdated because it's all about all of the great things that his girlfriend does for him. No mention at all of what he intends to do for her, so definitely pre-feminism. But remember, this is 1964, and so many other songs of that era reflect the exact same thing. Ringo is the one that I want you to listen to in the clip we're going to play because he introduces a new instrument into the song, the timpani. You can hear that hollow, deep drum sound, never before used on a Beatles record, and Paul adds in a bit of piano. John on this song is using both his 12-string electric and his acoustic guitars. So let's listen for those elements as we hear every little thing. I remember the first time I was lonely without her Can't stop thinking about her now Every little thing she does She does for me, yeah And you know the thing she does She does for me, ooh When I'm with her I'm happy Just to know that she loves me Yes, I know that she loves me now. All right, the next song up is one of those songs that was not on Beatles 65 because it was the B-side of that individual single release in America. It's I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. And it is very definitely a return to the country and Western theme of the LP. When I first heard this song, I was completely bewildered. It was just like the first time that I heard I'm a Loser. I don't want to spoil the party. John Lennon at a party, looking for a girl who doesn't show up, who jilts him. 
<laughs> seemed pretty unlikely to me because every single girl that I knew was lining up just to say hello to him. But as I started to hear his life story and understood more about his psyche, the song changed and grew in meaning. The party, of course, is not a party. It's a metaphor for life in general. John's decided he doesn't want to be a damper on this mad, 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 mad joy that's Beatlemania, and he doesn't want to be a downer on everyone's good time. So what he opts to do in life is to disappear, to be someone he's not, to cloak this cynicism and the bitter feelings and the anger and the loneliness and the resentment that he has. He becomes the Joker, this tongue and lower lip madman, the clown. John vanishes. He disappears. But one thing is for certain. Though tonight she's made me sad, I still love her. If I find her, I'll be glad. I still love her. This is almost a rewording of his very favorite cover song, Baby It's You. In that song, in Baby It's You, he says, you should hear what they say about you, cheat cheat. They say you'll never be true, but it doesn't matter what they say. You know I'm going to love you any old way, and it's true. Or how about the lyrics from that Smokey Robinson song, the one that John loved so much and covered, You Really Got a Hold on Me. He's saying, I don't like you, but I love you. Seems I'm always thinking of you. Whoa, you do me wrong now. My love is strong now. You really got a hold on me. Same song, different tune. It's the song of John's life. And here, and I don't want to spoil the party, he's singing it again, but this time to an upbeat country and western twang. To David Sheff, almost at the end of his life, John admitted, that was a very personal song of mine. You're going to listen to it. It's upbeat. It's up-tempo. But you're going to hear John once again telling you about his abandonment and his hurt and his loneliness and why he has to go on pretending to be happy when he never is and why he drinks and drugs his life away. Written in February 1964 during that whirlwind tour of America at the height of Beatlemania, at the height of success, at the height of fame, John is repeatedly being asked to smile at the cameras, but his heart is breaking. Listen to I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. I still love her, though I've had a drink or two and I don't care. There's no fun in what I do if she's not there. I wonder what went wrong, waited for too long, but I think I'll take a walk and look for her. Well, we're almost to the end of Beatles for Sale, and we have a very artsy, edgy, poetic song, What You're Doing. And again, this song isn't found on Beatles 65, and for me, I don't know about you, those of you who grew up in America, but it's one of the songs by the Beatles that I discovered as an adult. I never heard it as a teenager. It's not a song that's well-known in America, and it's a very cool song. Paul is experimenting with 1960s free verse. The kind of poetry that was being written by E.E. E. Cummings, each line is linked to the next line in a continuous expression of thought. And yes, Paul put some rhyme in it, but it's really one long exposition or thought 
linked together. Let me read you just the first two verses as poetry, very cutting edge. Look what you're doing. I'm feeling blue and lonely. Would it be too much to ask of you what you're doing to me? You got me running, and there's no fun in it. Why should it be so much to ask of you what you're doing to me? That's a pretty unusual sound for the Beatles. And if you listen to the bit we're about to play, you're going to hear what sounds really like a searcher's song, specifically the searcher's hit when you walk into the room. In America, it sounds a lot like the gigantic hit that we all knew so well, The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. It's not really a Beatlesque song, if, if there is such a thing. really sounds more like something from the other side of the pond that was not The Beatles. George Martin made this sound even cooler by double-tracking George's 12-string guitar lead, making it sound even richer and a little bit hollow and echoey. And then, adding his own talent into the mix, George played what he described as a tumbling piano. George Martin couples that tumbling piano with the lead guitar. It makes it very, very effective. Now, you guys all know that John loved to double-track his voice. That was his thing. He did it all the time. But here, Paul's vocals are double-tracked, and that's pretty unusual. All sorts of quirky twists in this number. But the biggest twist is this. For once, Paul's not being so optimistic. His relationship with Jane Asher was pretty rocky about this time. He had asked her to give up her acting career, and she'd refused. And the two of them were separated almost 24-7. She was always away on tour, and he was busy too. And Paul is letting her know in the song how unhappy he really is. For a rare moment, it is Paul being vulnerable and letting us hear his feelings, which he rarely is. And I think that this song, in my opinion, has even greater depth of passion than I'll Follow the Sun. Let's listen. and I see George Harrison stepping up now to close the LP. He's about to sing, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. The Beatles have stuck to their theme throughout this entire LP. They've gone country and western, and they're going to end it, country and western, on a high note with a Carl Perkins cover song. Now here again, guys, this song's not on Beatles 65, which is so unnerving for the lads from Liddypool, because yet another country and western tune has been removed by Capitol. I can just imagine how irked they were when they saw Beatles 65 and how upset George Martin must have been, too. The theme of this LP was completely destroyed by the powers that be in America. The sound of everybody's trying to be my baby should be pretty familiar to anyone who knows anything about country music because the exact same tune is used for Hank Williams' Move It On Over and for Mind Your Own Business. 
But Carl Perkins takes that exact tune and he kind of puts a little bit of Elvis's blue suede shoes in it and you get everybody's trying to be my baby. Like Ringo, George, George Harrison, got a song on each and every Beatles LP and this is George's number. He makes the song absolutely charming. First of all, that thick back-of-the-throat Scouse accent makes it wonderful. And he makes great choices with the way he sings it. He was known, George was known, as the womanizer of the group, not only at this time, but when they were in Hamburg. He was always the womanizer. And the girls who wrote in to the BBC, and you can hear this on BBC Live, whether you listen to Volume 1 or Volume 2, always referred to him as Gorgeous George. They loved him. So it's not far from the truth for him to sing, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. Interestingly enough, guys, John is not playing just guitar here. He's playing the tambourine, and Ringo is manning the drums. It's a fun romp to the end of the record. The boys love to do this song live. They did it in the Star Club in Hamburg. They did it on Saturday Club. They performed it on Pop Go the Beatles. It's even one of the songs that they did in Shea Stadium. It's upbeat. It's cute. It's harmless. And it's the song that George Martin chose to end the Beatles' fourth LP on a high note, Beatles for Sale closes with this very cheery number, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. Let's listen. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up and they called it me. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Woke up last night, half past four. Women knocking on my door. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. I really enjoyed strolling through Beatles for Sale with you, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Let me know how you like the show and comments, suggestions, and if you have corrections, I'd love to hear that too. Write to me at rjkess at comcast.net. Next week, one of my favorite guests. We're going to be rocking and rolling the Kit and Caboodle show. It's our first one of 2015. We're going to do a Kit and Caboodle show every other month. And this first show is going to celebrate the love songs of Paul McCartney and John Lennon. In fact, we're going to raise the question, who wrote the better love songs? John or Paul? Dr. Kit O'Toole, Kit, is going to be supporting the case of Sir Paul McCartney, and I'll be supporting the case of John Lennon, surreal as it were. We're going to play some music, talk about each song. Kit will have three songs that she will use to bolster her case, and I'll have three songs for mine. So join us next week, Thursday, 12 February, for the first Kit and Caboodle show, The Love Songs of Lennon and McCartney. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. All the best to you and yours. ta and shine on. <laughs>